Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? All things considered, I am well enough. Thank you for asking. Uh, we got a lot to, uh, well, we got another large number of chapters we got to cover. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly how much we want to talk about. The subject matter of these verses is going to be primarily focused on the plagues. But uh, mm-hmm. before we go ahead and get there, let me just remind the people that uh, we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a uh, collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we're going to be in chapters uh, 7 through 13 today in the book of Exodus. Again, this is going to primarily focus on the plagues. That is what we are dealing with today. Um, Mm -hmm. What I found interesting and what I'm going to spend most of my time talking about today is Pharaoh's efforts to compromise and what we can learn from those and what other, I mean, primarily what lessons we can uh, take from those. That's probably what I'm going to spend most of my time talking about today. Uh, I want to talk about the nature of his proposals, Moses's response to them, mm-hmm. what we can learn from those. And if there's time, I do want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the price of Pharaoh's stubbornness. Uh, I, I imagine that's going to be a subject of Sunday school lessons, but uh, I, I really want to prioritize uh, the Pharaoh's proposals. Uh, do you have any other, do you have any prefatory words you want to give before we dive into the content of the verses? Yeah, I have I have quite a few things. And in fact, I'm not even sure where to put this because I don't have a lot of verse by verse commentary going through the text. I have I okay. have a lot of themes that I want to talk about and I could talk about them up front. I could talk about them along the way. I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, but I sort of wanted to put a preface on this section of chapters by talking about these plagues and how do we deal with issues of violence in the text, right? Because we've got uh, a substantial amount of physical, mental uh, damage that happens to the Egyptians, including the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, which is clearly if you have small children and babies being killed who never did anything wrong except be born Egyptian, like, what do we do with that? And and this gets attributed by the narrative to God. And what do we do with all that? Especially for me coming from a, a standpoint of nonviolence, like, how, how do I wrestle with that? And I don't have all the answers, and we don't have time for the answers if I even did have them. But I wanted to say just a couple of things. Uh, one of the... Uh, first, and this is a larger question that I'm just going to really dodge, but it's the question of literalism and historicity and do we take this as a fundamentalist interpreting everything in the genre of of journalism right that this is literally exactly what happened and and we can take the text at face value that if god did something then god did it right and we don't have to like especially when we look at the text closely and the human fingerprints that are all over the text in the in the cultural context of a time and the in these factors that went into how the story gets told and how it's framed literarily. And when we look at the historical and archaeological record, 
uh, we don't have the evidence that this is exactly how it happened, right? This is not how it happened. And this might be a surprise to some people, um, but what we have to do is just go option three. Mm -hmm. If you grew up thinking that everything literally happened and everything should be interpreted literally and, and historically, that can't be sustained in light of, of the evidence uh, for for a lot of these things, especially the older and farther back you go. And you have three options. You can go option one and say, no, I'm going to stamp my feet and this is the word of God. And it's going to, which we as Latter-day Saints, I don't think we should have to do, right? Mm -hmm. We don't believe in the infallibility of the Bible. We don't believe that it plopped down directly from heaven. Um, so we shouldn't have to go option one and just be in denial. And we shouldn't go at option two and completely abandon the liter uh, 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 abandon the narrative and say, well, Nothing, none of it's true then, so mm -hmm. I'm out of here. I, I encourage us to go option three with this. And if you need a review of, of Crash Theory, go to um, tinyurl.com slash crash theory. All one word, crash theory. Anyway, that's I don't want to talk any more about that, but but that's a piece of it. And, and, and we'll get the same thing with the genocide of the Canaanites. Well, that didn't actually mm -hmm. happen the way it says it, it does in the text. And so some mm -hmm. of the things that we might want to attribute to God, uh, if we are a fundamentalist, we don't have to do that. Anyway, mm -hmm. I wanted to talk a little bit about Beowulf. I don't want to spend too much time because we're both uh, pressed for time, I guess. And I've I've noticed this. So Beowulf on one on one level can tend to glorify violence because you've got this heroic warrior culture where um, defending and avenging are all glorified. And I'm like, what do we do with that? And I remember <laughs> I talking. So I'm taking um, uh, old English, uh, an old English class with a graduate student in the UK. And I mentioned something about the setting of Beowulf in, in Scandinavia, and he said to me, well, of course, Beowulf didn't really happen. I'm like, yeah, that goes without saying. I do not <laughs> believe in the literal existence of fire-breathing, scaly, large dragons, right? That's mm -hmm. like, you, we don't need to say that. And I think, um, but, but there's a sense in which, okay, this is fiction, Right, Beowulf is fiction. No one actually got hurt in the uh, mm -hmm. in the making of this book. So we do have a question of like, how do we take the violence? Can we make it allegorical? Can we make it symbolic? Can we? Is it even right to? And part of what I'm going to say is is what where it all boils down is to how does it change you and your actual deeds? Does reading mm. by Beowulf make me go out and be more violent? Or does mm -hmm. reading Beowulf sort of uh, allow me to uh, to, to uh, expend some of those tendencies that otherwise would have gone into aggression, like if, if mm -hmm. I had any, right? Um, yeah. And I think it's more the latter. Like, I don't think that reading the Beowulf makes me more violent. I think that uh, it actually makes me more nonviolent. It makes me feel more powerful because then I'm able to transcend it. And for just for example, uh, my fight against homophobia, I it's a fight, but I see it in a very nonviolent way. 
And, and so I can take it symbolically and allegorically. So, for example, Grendel is the first major monster of Beowulf. And Beowulf, our hero, comes and uh, decides, you know what? I'm going to fight Beowulf with no armor, with no sword, with no chainmail, with no shield, which is unheard of. But he's like, well, Grendel doesn't have those things, and and so I'm not going to do it either. And so I've started to like take off some of my armor and say, you know what? I'm going to fight homophobia with, with no armor. I'm just going to be me. And so what happened is Beowulf ends up um, fi- fighting by hand and prevailing over Grendel, just like I, pre- I, I can prevail. I should not be afraid of homophobia. I shouldn't have to put on this armor. So I'm just walking around here like I'm just not going to be afraid of homophobia anymore. I'm going to be... Well, not naked, but but without armor, right? I'll just be I'll just be me, and we're gonna have this. F- and, and so, Beowulf wins and actually tears off Grendel's arm and and kills Grendel, and then celebrates with the arm and holds it up and parades it around. And it's uh, there's entire celebration in the mead hall. All these drunken warriors are like celebrating the the victory over Grendel, and here you have Grendel with the trophy of the arm. And this actually is the first record in the English language of any kind of Second Second Amendment issue, the right to bear arms. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you're laughing. I thought you didn't like my jokes. It was a stupid joke. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) But no, my point is, like, reading Beowulf helped me get through the get through the day, get through the week, get through the the month, right? Because I've been dealing mm-hmm. just with a lot of homophobia, um, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I'm just not gonna be afraid anymore. I'm not gonna let it control me, right? And so it doesn't make me any more violent. I think it just helps me now. Just well, anyway, I think. Uh, much of Protestantism lost the allegorical the allegorical tradition that goes back to people like uh, Origen mm. and to some extent Augustine, uh, the school of Alexandria as well. We've got a lot of early church fathers that say, you know what? Um, it's not good. It's not cool to make the Egyptians the bad guys and celebrate the death of actual humans. So what we're going right. to do is right. make the Egyptians a symbol. It's going to represent our sins, Right. So it's not that God is defeating actual humans. It's that God is defeating our sins, and it's just a mm. symbol of our sins, or it's just a symbol of something. And uh, I think, okay, that's a, good, that's a good way of taking the drowning of the Egyptians in the sea, is that, that mm-hmm. we're, we're not fighting against flesh and blood, as Paul says in, um, in Ephesians chapter 6, if you take it to be written by Paul. But anyway, so that's kind of what I want to say is there's ways of taking it and there's not one right way of doing it. It gets back to what makes you a better person on the ground, what makes you less violent, what makes you get through the day, all those other things. Yeah. And um, there is one very nonviolent way that God could have done the 10 plagues instead of having all this death and devastation and and pestilence and disease and, and death. He could have just sent me... And just one plague of jokes by Derek, oh, Pharaoh would have crumbled. He would have just said, "Weedle it out of him." He would have said, "He would have caved." He would have. He would have said, "Nope, 
you all can go. Just get this Derek creature out of here. I'm done. I'm done with these jokes. And right. then he'd harden his heart. That's what he would do. He would well, like be like, take it, remove this plague from me. It, it's too much. <laughs> and then as soon as you left, as soon as Moses got a healthy distance away from the city mm-hmm. and prayed to God to remove Derek, Pharaoh would just be back on his BS again. No, I think I do. no, I think just one of me would have been. He would have been like, "Nope, we're done. This is just the end." Right? <laughs> Which is okay. what the what the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, really does. Mm-hmm. Um, although mm-hmm. even then, after that, he chases them. So right, we don't even right. know. We don't. We don't. And I do I want to say. Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead because mine is a, is a tangent. Okay, I just wanted to say why we were still having this conversation on the purpose of this story. We we've talked before about genre on this show, about uh, you know about uh, about myth uh, specifically. Mm-hmm. I think we talked a little while on and about saga, and now I think with the introduction of Exodus, we're moving into epics. I don't I don't know. It, it reads kind of like that to me at this mm-hmm. point, but yes, I a, do. It's an epic, especially in the sense of a. Um, national foundational narrative. There it is. Right? Yes. That is, yes. There, many epics typically do that. Um, okay. Many epics are about some type of voyage or t- some type of journey or some type of um, uh, something Exodus. like that. Exodus. Yeah. Exodus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, while we were having this particular conversation, I just wanted to uh, highlight what you said and something that I you know, heard uh, taught by Middleton, like about about the purpose of these stories, why they might be in the Bible. And, you know, maybe they're not meant to be read historically or scientifically, and that doesn't have to be a problem, like you said. I saw mm-hmm. someone on the internet say that the uh, beginning of Genesis isn't meant to uh, uh, challenge Darwin's theory of evolution, but rather challenge social Darwinism. And I thought that was really cool. It lets us know that mm-hmm. the purpose of these uh, stories that we read isn't exactly to tell us how the world and everything in it came into being or what exactly happened in the past. We uh, talked about Enema Eilish as a as a uh, means of telling this story. And perhaps a reason is a story like this, which is why Pharaoh responded the way he did to Moses's plea to let his people go. He was like, who is God that I should let your people go, that I should listen to him? A God of an oppressed people? Why would I listen to that God? Mm, A God of mm. people that I have power over? Why would I listen to that God? You know, that makes total sense. And we see that theme moving all throughout and the challenge of that theme moving all throughout, uh, you know, this Exodus narrative as well. But to bring it back to the conversation around myth, the purpose of these stories isn't really to tell us how things went down exactly, what happened in the past, but rather how the world can continue on, how it can be kept together, what tears it apart, what matters Mm -hmm. most Mm -hmm. about the present and future and humanity itself. How do we deal with crisis? Those are the kinds of questions that these stories are supposed to help us answer. And uh, then Middleton goes on to say that they're supposed to dig deeper than scientific or historic facts to express basic truth about life, which is difficult to express in any other way. So regardless of whether or not these uh, what, what we're reading in this uh, story actually happened the way it says it happened in uh, in this book of Exodus, we shouldn't lose the lessons that it teaches. And uh, we shouldn't lose the basic truth about life, which may have been difficult to express 
any other way. It's one thing to tell people, don't be prideful, don't harden your hearts, don't be so so caught up in your own way of thinking that you know you doom your family right. and your people and your nation. It's another thing entirely to read this story of the Exodus and see just the tension throughout, um, especially these chapters, the plagues chapters, and watch somebody literally lose everything because of their stubbornness or Mm -hmm. learn about the consequences of compromise or learn about the consequences of violence when we actually see all of these things in the same story. So uh, I just wanted to add a witness to what you were saying about uh, the value of these, uh, of what we're reading and the purpose of it. Yeah. And I think that gets back to like, what is religion about? I mean, there's a, it's not just a shortcut to doing your science and your history, right? Like, oh, I've got religion, so I, I can I can skip doing the science. No, it's not a replacement for science and history. It's not even competing with them. It's offering meaning-making on a symbolic level, on a communal level, on a mm-hmm. um, social level. There's just so many ways about life as a practice of how you should live your life and what stories inform how you live it. And we notice from the Bible and the Book of Mormon and Jesus' parables that, that there are some truths that cannot be told. They can only be shown. I can't remember Ooh. who first said that. Ooh. But I That is a word. Yeah. There's some truths that can only that cannot be told. They can only be shown. And that's why we have these and I think the temple, our temple narrative is another thing where you, you have symbolically showing truths and not just telling them as propositional facts. Right, right. Uh, something that you mentioned, uh, especially connecting with the Enuma Elish, uh, reminds me that, uh, and I'm not going to go into the details, but for many of these plagues, you have very specific gods of the Egyptians that are symbolically attacked, like the god Ooh. of the Nile, the god of the crops, the god of the god of mm-hmm. each of all these things had these gods, and like, who is that? Who's the God of, of Israel, right? Who, who is it, right? And so that is a very powerful statement that the God of Israel takes precedence over all of the gods of the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one thing I'm, I'm kind of rambling on. A, there's a lot of stuff I wanted to say, and I don't know where to say it, but um, I don't have a lot of commentary on the individual plagues, like I said. Um, right. But the themes uh, you said you wanted to talk about that are yeah. present. Um, are you going to talk a little bit about, by any chance, the escalation of these plagues? Like the way they escalate? They do escalate, and you can see that um, in the first three, I believe it is, the Egyptian magicians are able to imitate. Uh, but ev- eventually they get to the point where they can't imitate that. Um, yeah. And they do escalate in more severity. And, of course, the 10th plague is um, the one that really uh, allows them to um, uh, to, 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 uh, to make it costly for, for yeah. the Egyptians, right? Um, and that's exactly what the Lord does is make Pharaoh's stubbornness costly for him and personally costly because then his own son, of course, dies. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the challenge is I imagine that Pharaoh on some level realized that it was the right thing to let them go, mm-hmm. but he refuses to give up his privilege. He is stubborn. I love the Prince of Egypt movie. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, go ahead. 
and how the pharaoh in the movie says, I will not be the weak link in the chain. Yes, yes. And I really think that a lot of the leaders of our church, that's their that's their line. They're like, I'm not going to be the one that's going to let in the homos. I'm not going to be the one that's going to have women's ordination. Like they ha- are- I'm not going to be the one that lets us be called Mormons. Yeah. <sighs> right? But I yeah. think when you look at some of the articulation of the reasoning- behind the uh, discrimination of folks of african dis- descent in our our hi- in our history all of them say look every prophet from from brigham on down denied the priesthood and temple blessings i'm not going to be the one to change it as probably every one of them like i'm sure right. david o mckay wrestled with it he he yeah. thought about it yeah. and he like i'm not going to be the one mm-hmm. and um that's probably by the time you get to 1978, that's probably the only reason you had left was was inertia to keep it going. Um, mm-hmm. I, I suspect, and and they decided mm-hmm. like, yeah, the they got to the point where just because you've kept making the mistake isn't a good enough reason to keep making it anymore. Yep, yep. I I thought of two other things that are very interesting. Is that um, and this is kind of reading some of the later material in numbers. Um, but how how they hated the uh, the oppression and the enslavement in Egypt at the time, but then they went and they they longed for it later and they missed it and how it was at least it was consistent at least we had our food and a place to be buried and like mm-hmm. whatever. Now we're out in this wilderness and we don't got any any consistency and I think that's what the wilderness is. It's it's going to be untamed. It's going to be unpredictable. Yeah, mm-hmm. the closet. The enslavement, the whatever, the oppression, it's familiar. Yeah, it's awful, yeah. but it's familiar. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who are not going to want the church to go into this unfamiliar place. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing. Is is yeah, the closet can be very tempting. It can be it can be clo- uh, tempting to go back into the closet. And remember, right. like I said last week, Mitzrayim means a narrow place. That is the Hebrew word for Egypt. It's a uh, yeah. a, a narrow place um there is something interesting about i want to say something about the the passover seder i have been to numerous passover seders with my jewish friends and uh there there are uh traditionally four cups of wine that are consumed but in the past in in the uh in the uh, order that's what the word seder means in the in the prescribed order for the uh, for this ritual and ceremony uh, there's a place for where you're expected to to uh, take ten drops of wine out of your wine cup, and you put you 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 draw you spill ten drops of wine out of your cup to symbolize that the joy that we have is diminished by the plagues. That is, we we meaning we Jews. Um, I'm not. I'm not Jewish, but we, uh, from what I've heard, that we aren't really celebrating uh, the the plagues. That they are something that happened and whose very presence uh, diminishes the joy that we otherwise would have had. And I think there's a way of even just that little bit of solidarity with the fact that there's human cost is. Uh, is something that that's at least memorialized there within 
the, the Passover Seder. I also want to say that we should not have any Christian satyrs. Do not go and imitate or impersonate or fabricate or any other eight a Jewish satyr. This is a very particular um, sacred time ritual. It's an identity marker, right? It is a significant mm-hmm. identity marker. Christians should not do do it. Do not go and play dress up and, and pretend. And I, I know people have done this. It is completely inappropriate. It's, to me, on the analogy of someone getting some robes and say, hey, we're going to do a Mormon endowment. Uh, and they get the thing and just do it and they do it themselves. I'm like, no, please don't do that. Um, we should not appropriate the Christian Seder. I, I, I mean, we should not appropriate the Seder and turn it into something Christian or turn it into something about Christ. Mm-hmm. Something like that. We actually have our own ceremonies already. We've got... Uh, um, the Lord's, uh, we've got the sacrament. We've got, uh, we could have agape feasts if we wanted to. Like, there's other things we could do that are more authentic to our tradition. So I just want to name that. Now, by the way, if if someone invites you, yeah, by all means, go and participate, but do not host and start your own Christian satyrs. Good point to make. And um, if we get a chance to talk about. Uh, you know, the end of this particular Come Follow Me lesson, I think it's going to be chapters 12 and 13 that talk mm-hmm. about uh, our responsibility or specifically the Israelites' responsibility to teach their children why they do the festival. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. love to be able yes. to talk about, uh, you know, these rituals and the right. purpose that they have. And of course, the necessi- necessity of passing them on. I don't know if right. we want to do that right now or if we can have a uh, another conversation. But I think while we're on this theme, it may be wiser to do that now? I don't know if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, sure. We can do that now. Like if we jump into Exodus 12, we see the uh, Passover being set up not as a one-time thingy, but as a perpetual feast that you are to do every year and to teach it to your Mm -hmm. children and to remember the liberation from Egypt. And this becomes a uh, significant identity-forming event for the Israelites as they as they leave Egypt, and this is really their um, declaration of independence. This is their 1776. Mm-hmm. This is their like founding narrative. Um, even yeah. though they go back to Abraham, they go back to Adam. There's a sense in which the identity of Israel as a people uh, gets bound up in not only this event, but then how they retell it. What were your thoughts on that? My only, uh, I mean, these were thoughts I didn't get to fully form, but uh, I just really liked how Moses reminded them. This is, I believe, in chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 10. Um, It talks about how God had destroyed all the firstborn males of Egypt and spared the firstborn of Israel, and therefore he declared that the Israelites were Mm -hmm. to consecrate or dedicate to him their own firstborn. And this is obviously a kind of type of, you know that's going to come and be further expounded upon once we get to uh, once we get to Paul and stuff. But uh, Moses reminded the people to remember this day, uh, the day that God had delivered them out of the place of slavery. That's what it says in uh, verse verse mm-hmm. three, and they were able to they were to celebrate it in the years to come, even after they had entered the promised land, and they were also to teach its meaning to their children, mm-hmm. teach their children that. Um, you know, this was the day of our liberation. This is why we do this festival. This is why we have, uh, you know, the Passover. And I just thought that was 
profound, held in distinction to, uh, you know, Pharaoh's desire to compromise by leaving the children behind, but also to pass on the history, pass on the information. There is something to be said here about, you know, teaching children uh, about our liberation, about our history, and uh, passing these traditions on. There's multiple conversations that can be had here, and I think it was in the desire to try to have those multiple conversations that I never fully formed a, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a singular thought about this. But I do think that's a conversation worth having. The conversation around why uh, they celebrate this holiday, and uh, you know, why we do this ritual, why we continue the celebration, the Mm -hmm. Seder, and why we have our own, um, why we have our own celebrations, why we have our own rituals, uh, like, like the sacrament, like we do that for a very particular reason in remembrance of, you know, the atonement and to reverence it. So, um, anyway, very shallow, but I do think there's a conversation to be had there that I am unfortunately not in a position to fully flesh out but I just wanted to make sure that was at least mentioned so people mm-hmm. could further dialogue on it. And I think one of the coolest things about the the Exodus story and the Passover Seder and teaching it to your children is that every generation gets to make it their own story. It's, it's supposed to be told as if it happened to you, right? Mm-hmm. So you get to make it your own. You get to liken it unto your yourselves. And I know that... Um, that on the Seder plate, which traditionally contains six particular symbolic foods, some folks have added an orange on the Seder plate in honor of um, LGBTQ Jews and the fruitfulness. Really? Yeah, like some people say, well, the orange doesn't belong on the Seder plate. Well, well, that's the whole point of, yeah, hmm. this huge orange, it doesn't, doesn't fit. It, it fits. And some people have put um, an olive on the Seder plate in order to symbolize peace with the Palestinians. There's just a whole bunch of richness that you can do to, um, uh, well, not play with, but to... Uh, to da- to dance with the tradition and and make it your own and and retell it and it's it's um it's amazing and I, that's why I think we I'm an option three thinker like not throwing the baby out with the bathwater there is something rich in taking the traditions that you inherited and making it your own and passing it on in a better version I think that is I don't want to throw it all out there's a lot of of stuff there and and, and it's the same thing with the Bible right there's there's going to be really challenging stuff in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, I don't throw out the Bible. I study the Bible, and to get to this, I want to. Um, hopefully, people will forgive me, but I want to quote a fairly lengthy passage from an essay by. Uh, did Did you uh, get the um, yeah, book of it. queer prophets that I sent you? Mm-hmm. Thank you, by uh, the way. The book of essays, right? Uh, the what? The book with the essays. Yes, the book with the essays. All right, just um, sure. So there's one um, particular essay called uh, Let My People by a gay Irish Catholic poet and theologian. Um, his name is Padraig Otwama, and he is the pa- one of the past presidents of the Corimila community, which is a an ecumenical conflict resolution uh, group that of that did a lot of very important work healing the divisions between Catholics and Protestants in the Northern Ireland situation, right? 
And uh, like I said, he's gay and grew up Catholic and is a very profound theologian and a poet, right? And so that's why he his, his wording is, I want to read his exact wording and not just summarize it. So here's what he says. Quote, Let my people go, Moses told the Pharaoh. I had accidentally stumbled into a love of the Bible. Somewhere along the way, I learned that the Bible was less a manual for keeping out of hell and more a library for the living. Whatever the future, it told stories of people who had the courage to live now. These people survived genocides. They gave God new names when the old names stopped working. They changed. They survived. They made rituals to mark the horror that had broken them. One of them called God a deceiving stream, but still wept in prayers. In this vast landscape of language, there was an argument about what God meant, and that argument welcomed all kinds of people, including me. Quietly, I began reading the Bible like it was poetry. When I read it like this, it opened up. I couldn't tell anyone. It was my secret. I kept a book in which I wrote my own engagements with the Gospels, my own considerations of the lives and loves of the characters in the text. I felt like it was a record of blasphemy, but when I read these journals now, it reads like a prayer of the desperate in the face of the devil. It worked. Let my people go, Moses told Pharaoh. Pharaoh had seen the Hebrew people and believed that they were the problem, so he decided to get rid of them. He blamed the people he hated by projecting his hate onto them and making them the problem, not him. It's an old trick. Change them and everything will be okay. For years, I was the them. I believed I needed to change. I believed the lies that the pharaohs around me told. If homosexuality were indulged, it would wreck families. It would wreck a childhood. It would, it would cause death. I was a person under the thumb of a frightened pharaoh, and I believed all his damned lies. Let my people go. And in another place, he says, um, When pharaoh was persecuting the Hebrew people, their suffering rose to God like incense, and God sent a messenger, Moses, to challenge the pharaoh. Let my people go, Moses said to pharaoh. Whose people were they? Moses's? God's? Their own? The people were a motley crew, united by the way they were hated by the powerful. Let my people go, Moses said to Pharaoh. A people became a people because of their shared need to move out from a system that abhorred them. I'm going to say that again. A people became a people because of their shared need to move out from a system that abhorred them. They were not perfect. That was never the point. They weren't the ones with the problem Pharaoh was. He thought he would last forever. He didn't. He died. We barely remember his name. But we remember the people who built Zion. Their name is a blessing. A name that is built to welcome in the stranger, the outsider, the foreigner, the dispossessed, the downtrodden, the lowly, and the lonely. Let my people go. Someone said to a person in power, and those under the power realized they were a people. They were not alone. 
close quote. Isn't that brilliant? It's beautiful. And it's yeah. brilliant, yes. Um, and there's one other little piece that I want to take from his essay. Here's what he says, quote, I felt like I was digging down into the foundations of the texts that had frightened me before. I sought out scripture scholars. I heard them say that the Bible is a vast library of brilliance written over 1,400 years by authors who'd have disagreed with each other's ideas of what the word God meant. God is a long-stretched muscle in the minds of people over millennia, someone said to me, and the imagination opened, close quote. I love this idea that he points out that there's diversity, like all these people in the Bible, they would not be, they would be surprised that they're bound under one cover with each other. Some of mm-hmm. them disagree. Mm-hmm. Some of them had dis- different visions of God. Oh, and by the way, for those that might not know, um, the prophet who called God a deceiving stream, that was Jeremiah. Hmm. Uh, that that uh, Padraig uh, mentioned. I just wanted to say that this ties up a lot of these things about the plagues, about letting my people go, about the identity formation of this experience and how... Like the Exodus story is so liberatory that people who wanted to enslave others cut it out of the Bible, right? When they made the <laughs> slaves Bible. I mean, it's yeah. just it's just as powerful. And this is why I don't want to throw it out. I don't want to throw out um, our tradition. I want to add to it. I want to continue it. I want to go option three with it in many cases. Uh, there's, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. I mean, you don't need to. And yeah. I don't think you're supposed to. Uh, I think there is a beauty and a necessity of these varied voices over millennia that, you know, don't necessarily agree with each other and clearly indicate a different relationship and a different understanding and a different relationship with, did I say that already? I'm sorry. A different mm-hmm. relationship with the divine. Like, I think that is necessary. And uh, I, necessary that we see that, that we experience that. Um, I mean, that alone uh, should mm-hmm. give us plenty of license to cultivate our own relationships and our own uh, kind of knowledges and experiences that we have with God. Mm-hmm. I think if the Bible makes a case for anything, one of the things it makes a case for at the very least is that our experiences with the divine are going to be very different from the experiences um, you know, that Moses had, that Jeremiah had, that... Uh, Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these other characters in the Bible had. So, yeah. Yeah, and I want to I want to get this in in with the um uh some of our listeners may know that that your course has gotten some pushback and not in the sense of <laughs> at all fair critiques of it. What it is is they're just afraid of it being a divisive. They're afraid of showing it in the ward. They're afraid of of uh they're afraid of it and they're like they they think it's gonna be divisive and it's gonna it's gonna be contentious and it's gonna cause contention and I'm like, or we don't need it like we don't there's no or we yeah, don't have a racism like, problem in this war we don't have a racism state. problem right <laughs> and what yeah. I want to say to them is um and some of these are gonna be local leaders some of these local leaders are gonna say we don't need it or it's too divisive or we're not ready for it or whatever here's what I want to say to them you need to grow up and get over yourself. Because you have a completely self-serving understanding of what's divisive and what's contentious, right? Mm-hmm. You think that being uh, a Christian, being a Latter-day Saint means to just 
be uh, superficially nice and not cause any ruffles. Well, you know who caused ruffles? It was Moses, right? Mm -hmm. If anyone, you know, I imagine these stake presidents would go to Moses and say, Moses, you can't talk to Pharaoh that way because you're being divisive. (laughs) You know, you're being, you're creating contention. No, I mean, like (laughs) Dr. King already said this. He's not creating the tension. He's just exposing it. Yeah. That's already there. Right. And, and uh, yeah. And so if any of your local leaders try to use that line of, oh no, that's divisive. You need to call it out publicly as manipulative. That is manipulative. It's a manipulative use of our tradition. It's an abusive use of power and it's a complete distortion of the image of God in everyone both in that leader and in the in the child of god that they're talking to. And but and here's a blatant the blatant refusal to follow the follow the prophet. Right. Like, did the prophet right. not say that we needed to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice and when a resource comes to help y'all do that, you don't want to take advantage of it. And and let me just say some words of comfort to the to the individuals who are trying to get this course out there or trying to trying to do their their part. Mm-hmm. And when your local leaders stoop to having to be manipulative and abusive to you in that way, it's because they are admitting that they have lost on the merits. They know that they don't have a case. You've won. Be proud in the fact that you've won. Be proud that the in the fact that they can't even argue with on with you on the on the actual facts and merits of the case. They just have to say, "Oh, that's divisive," rather than, "Oh, it's wrong." They have to say it's divisive. But here, you are blessed because. Listen to me out there listening to my voice here. If leaders, if religious leaders treat you in your time the way religious leaders treated Jesus in his time, then know that you are blessed. Know that you're blessed. If they treat you the same way they treated Jesus was divisive. Oh boy, did he get people mad. They wanted to kill him. They literally killed him. Right. People say, oh, you can't get political in church. God's people aren't divisive. They're sweet and and not political. You know what John the Baptist says to that? He says, hold my head. (laughs) He confronted a political uh, power to the point where he got his head chopped off. That's Mm -hmm. what prophets do. They cause a stink. And they would rather die than than just be sweet and nice and not cause trouble. So, so yeah, I better stop talking about this because, or else I could I could talk about it for another three hours. <laughs> well, well, well. Um, let's talk about Pharaoh though. Like I, 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 would love I don't to know do if that. I should empathize with him at all. Um, yeah. Part of his problem is. That Pharaoh identifies with the system and he's invested in the system. His entire mm-hmm. identity as the leader of the Egyptians, the son of God, the the person who's supposed to live forever, this person who's supposed to be mummified and resurrected and like live forever, all of that was tied up in in the system. And so when someone critiques the system, these people take it personally. Like and I think the same thing is true when we when we deal with any injustice. When we when we critique the system, people take it personally. And I'm like, no, it's mm-hmm. not really about you. It might not even be your fault. You might have inherited a system that benefits you and 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 even without any ill will. Uh, this is why people say that they're not racist is because they don't have this particular kind of ill will that they know of. 
that is that is factoring into uh, their choices, but it, it, it's part of the system, and I think that's what we see here is that Pharaoh doesn't doesn't want to give up his privilege, but then right. God sends someone who can straddle both sides. Uh, Moses knew the Pharaoh's court, and Moses knew the outside. He spent years and years in Midian healing from from all this stuff, mm-hmm. and I think he was uh, particularly called to uh to do this yeah um to do that to do this amazing thing and he he was uh uh he was the foundational prophet of of judaism right um mm-hmm. and let's talk about foundational prophecy you know who else made people want to kill him it was joseph smith he literally made people want to kill him numerous mm-hmm. times and they finally did like how dare you say well you gotta keep sweet and you gotta not be contentious and not be divisive like that's it, that's just the nature of of truth. Truth is divisive. Um, I don't want to add to the division unnecessarily. I'm not saying just go around and be a jerk, but when you preach the right. truth, it's going to divide households. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I wanted to say that uh, one of the one of the injustices we don't talk enough about um, the injustices facing trans folk in in the church. Um, in part because it's a numbers issue, like there's even fewer trans folk than uh, than cisgender LGBTs, but that shouldn't be an excuse. My view is that if we get things right for trans folks, we get right thing we get things right for everyone, uh, for people of all genders and orientations. And um, there's there's places where uh, folks are not allowed to go to relief society, or they're not allowed to go to elders quorum, or they're not allowed to use the bathroom that coheres with their identity as a child of God that they know themselves to be. Every person deserves to have a safe place to go to bathroom at church. That is a fundamental human right. Mm-hmm. And there's some places where they will um, not be allowed to use one restroom and they'll be unsafe or yelled at or, or perhaps harmed in the other restroom. It's just not okay to impose these things. You need to give people a safe place to go to the bathroom. And of course, the God of the Exodus story is on the side of everyone having a safe place to go to the bathroom because it says, the Lord said, let my people go. Mm. How did I not see that coming? <laughs> How did I not see that coming? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I wonder where Derek's going to go with this one. And then... Let my people go. <laughs> Yeah, I got it. <laughs> like the way you say it a second time, like I didn't hear it. No, well I'm not, to... I know you got it the first time. It's just so much fun to say. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> but really, um, let my people go. I mean, that's liberatory. Mm-hmm. Um, I especially liked the liberatory line in um, Padre Otwama's. Uh, I forgive me if I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. I don't. I don't really know Irish names. Uh, But he said, a people became a people because of their shared need to move out from a system that abhorred them. I think that is amazing. And we see this is very true of LGBTs. Now, I don't think that we should take this into like being about leaving the church, right? Mm -hmm. Leaving a homophobic system doesn't mean leaving a homophobic church. It just means no longer internalizing the homophobia, no longer letting it get to you and no longer flowing in it and believing it and believing the lie. Mm-hmm. Um, that that 
does, doesn't have anything to do one way or the other with leaving the church or not. I think it's it's mm-hmm. not about it's not that's not uh, for me where I'm taking this. Got you. Uh, Thank of you for course, clarifying as well. We should um, uh, uh, talk about how the Exodus story was it, it, tremendously life giving for the abolition movements in the in the United States and. Um, uh, bring, bringing hope to enslaved people, hope on the Underground Railroad. Uh, do you want to say anything about that? I was going to save that for, uh, you know, when we actually get out and oh. when we start having conversations about, uh, you know, the actual wilderness experience itself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, because, you know, Harriet Tubman was actually called Moses uh, mm-hmm. during yeah. her time during yep. doing the Underground Railroad. And I do want to talk a little bit more about that. But, uh, you know, time isn't on our t- side really and uh, the primary things i wanted to talk about and they may relate uh are related to uh pharaoh's interceptions or his attempted interventions at liberation disguised as compromise and uh i do want to have that conversation before mm-hmm. we finish this because this conversation we won't get to have again in the future uh, right once okay. pharaoh's sto- story is well done. then the one thing i do want to say is just name like the one of the important uh, 19th century spirituals that most many people may have heard of is um the one that says when israel was in egypt's land let my people go go down moses go down moses yeah i think mm-hmm. um that we can come back to that we can always come back to that but i just wanted to name that that is especially uh an appropriate i wish we had more black spirituals in our hymn book i mean more i wish we, we had, had any, any. <laughs> I wish we had i wish we had any yeah um I would really yeah. like to uh, spend a little bit of time talking about, um, you know, a theme that arises at least three or four times during this uh, "Come Follow Me" lesson, and this is Pharaoh's attempts to compromise, and you know what those communicate, what those can teach us, and uh, you know, liken that to us in a little bit, in a little bit of a way. So I want to read what Pharaoh says mm-hmm. after this. Uh, after this fourth plague, this is in Exodus 8. We've had mm-hmm. water turned to blood. We've had frogs. We had gnats. And now at this fourth plague, we have flies. This is his first effort to reason with Moses. And we saw a crack in Pharaoh's armor. I think you've observed after the third plague when Pharaoh's magicians, mm-hmm. they can see that God's work is in these plagues. This is like the plague they can't duplicate or the one they can't call off. They couldn't call any of them off. But like this is the point where... They even say themselves, okay, this isn't us. This isn't something we can do. God's at work in these plagues. And there's a theme in these compromises, mm-hmm. and it's that none of them grant, none of these compromises grant full liberation that God demands, that Moses demands. All of them lay a snare, actually, for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. So, like, let's just start with this first one, because I think it's the best example. And this is, again, chapter 8, and we're looking at verses 25 through 26. I'm, I'm reading the New Revised Standard Version. Okay. So uh, this is 25. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. That's the compromise. But there is mm-hmm. a problem with the Israelites trying to worship their God in Egyptian land, and Moses catches it immediately and says so in verse 26. Moses says, it would not be right to do so, for the sacrifices that we offer to the Lord our God are offensive to the Egyptians. If we offer in the sight of the Egyptians, if we offer in the sight of the Egyptians sacrifices that are offensive to them, 
will they not stone us? That's verse 26. Mm -hmm. Moses knows that this proposal is inadequate, not just because it's not what the Lord asked for, but because it immediately endangers him and his people. It's both disobedient and counterproductive. It's an attempt to appease God and Pharaoh that will ultimately please neither. And that sounds very much like the, uh, uh, the scripture mastery we read in uh, Matthew 6, mm-hmm. verse 24, no man can serve two masters. This also lets us know that full liberation cannot be attained on the oppressor's terms. As we'll Amen. see in the, Amen. Uh, yeah, as we'll see in the other attempted compromises, Pharaoh's interest is wholly in maintaining as much power as he can. He'll let the Israelites worship, but he'll let them worship on his turf and therefore on his terms. We see this in all kinds of institutions, especially religious ones. When it comes to uh, women, uh, people of color, disabled folks, LGBTQ folks, we'll, like we'll put women in positions of leadership, but also make it easy for us to ignore them. I was uh, reading right. uh, Chieko Okozaki's interview with Greg Prince in the Dialogue Journal a little bit ago. She was in the highest female leadership body in the church, and men were doing things for women without her at the table, without any women at the table. You compare what the Black LDS Legacy Committee's vision was for the 2018 B1 conference, and you compare that to the final product. Look at this token partnership that the church got with the NAACP, and tell me what strategy and policy the church has since implemented to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice. You you said it yourself, Derek. We got friends and listeners who are struggling to get the anti-racism course implemented in their ward communities because they don't see racism as a problem, or they view it as divisive. And of course, we see similar token gestures uh, being made to the LGBTQ community. This insistence that queer people are welcome if they only don't act on their queerness. Like, what is that if not a Matthew 624 compromise? Like, that's something Pharaoh would do. Like, he would be like, okay, you can you can be gay, but like, don't be gay. Like, mm. that that's the kind of thing that Pharaoh would propose. That's queer liberation on the oppressor's terms. It's not real. It's not what God wants. Yeah. I was at a state conference this uh, past weekend and they did the sustaining of church officers thing uh, during the state conference. Somebody raised mm-hmm. their hand in opposition to uh, two of the calls, and he was ignored. The counselor reading the names to be sustained, he didn't even look up. You know, This is what we talk about when we're talking about systems that give this guise of inclusivity, but like still oppress or make oppression easy. This is why you got queer folks and allies protesting outside the church office building a few days mm-hmm. ago. This is why you got them lighting the why. This is why you got women in the church organizing their own events to talk about Heavenly Mother. This is why our podcast and others like it are out there. The system presently in place doesn't work, and it doesn't make room for our voices. The solutions presently mm-hmm. offered to our problems, if they're at all offered, they're not real solutions. This is why Moses didn't compromise with Pharaoh at all. Pharaoh's object would always run contrary to God's. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What were you at on time? We got, okay, just a few more of these because they're very similar, at least mm-hmm. in uh, the ends they're trying to reach. Still chapter eight, but now we're in the next verses, 27 and 28. Uh, Moses speaking now. We must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. 28. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness provided you not go very far away. And then he has the audacity to add this, pray for me, close quote. That's, like, why that's would... saying thoughts and prayers. <laughs> that's literally, Yo. oh, thoughts and prayers, like I'm on your side, thoughts and prayers, and not doing Yo. anything. Substantive. Ridiculous. Absolutely. Like, why would Pharaoh be concerned about the distance, by the way? 
Like he clearly wanted to keep them on a leash. They'd think they were freed, but if he wanted to reach them, he could remind them who was boss. Like how often do we see this kind of thing in institutions where we permit some distance from the norm, some distance from authority, but not too much that we can't control it, um, especially when it comes to marginalized individuals. I was mm-hmm. learning about um, uh, freaking Andrew Young this past week. He was the uh, first black UN ambassador. I only knew him as that old dude after uh, the George Floyd protest who told black folk not to riot and loot because it hurt our cause. That's the only reason I know his name. But he had apparently a very big impact and a very big role in a couple of things. He was a towering figure uh, in the post-civil rights era. He was uh, a close confidant of King along with uh, uh, Ralph Abernathy and James Bevel and them. Mm-hmm. There's a you reason, know, though. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You know, the homos did that, too. Um. <laughs> They, with, they did what? Uh, so after the, like literally at the Stonewall riots, yeah. mm-hmm. the uh, Mattachine Society, which was a um a group of assimilationist respectabilityists, uh, uh, gay men, mm-hmm. uh, posted big signs saying, "We plead with our people: do not riot and do not do this other stuff. Just play nice, like playing." Playing nice didn't actually get us what Stonewall got right, us. Right. Stonewall shifted things, right? Yes. It yes. worked. And it worked so because um, everything else didn't work. Yeah. Like being nice. People I mean, act like, like the 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 Israelites were nice for four hundred years in Egypt. That 400 didn't work. Four hundred years in Egypt. They were subjected to Egyptians and that didn't work. Yeah. Um, sorry for interrupting you, but you were going no, to fine. say more about um, Andrew Young. Yeah, my bad. Uh, I was just going to say there's a reason he was the first black UN ambassador. Very similar to the reason, you know, Lord forgive me, that Obama was the first black president. And that's because he did as Pharaoh said. He didn't go very far away. Young, for example, yeah. wasn't a radical. He was temperate and moderate to a fault. Martin Luther King Jr. even made fun of this dude. And like, that's saying something. He made Mm -hmm. fun of him for that very thing. He said Young was too temperate and moderate to ever disrupt anything. And he even said, uh, shoot, I don't want to butcher this. He he said if Young ever got assassinated, white people would have really messed up because no one loved white people more than Andy Young. Like, that's... (laughs) That's from Martin Luther King. And that that's saying something if Martin Luther King Jr. Right. is roasting you like that. Like anyway, he didn't he didn't go very far away is what I'm trying to say. He, his only gaffes while he was a UN ambassador mm-hmm. uh was making his true feelings known. Like when he told Dan Rather that fighting racism was more important than fighting communism or when uh British folks said that their racism wasn't as bad as America's racism and then Andy Young was like, "Well, actually, you know, those were the only times mm. that people wanted Andy Young to lose his job was when he told the truth about being black in America. Like no American ambassador ever said those things out loud. And the backlash was swift. Like I said, people wanted him to lose his job over stuff like that. And he made very few gaffes like that. Mm-hmm. That's what. But the fact that he didn't make those mistakes, that's why he got to be UN ambassador. It certainly wasn't going to be king. They already killed him by this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know. To, make, to bring this back to like me a little bit, I struggled a little bit to rejoice 
when I first heard of Brother Ahmed Corbett's call to the Young Men's General Presidency or Peter Johnson's appointment to the 70. They were the first African-American men to hold those positions, but that meant to me to an extent that there's a reason why they're first. They probably didn't rock the boat too much and probably weren't going to. Did you know of their did you know of their stances or their reputation before they were called? Yeah. Um I knew I knew a few things. And I just know that usually if we're talking about the first African Americans to do anything, they are probably the first because they um aren't gonna rock the boat too much or didn't rock the boat too much. And this is what institutions always do. They choose the safest people from marginalized groups so that they can claim the facade of uh, diversity and inclusion without actually embodying any diversity and inclusion. Like, it's not a slick move. They think it's a slick move, but it's not. Like, what I see them doing is what Pharaoh's doing, attempting to position themselves and control Israel where mm-hmm. they would think themselves free, but be within easy reach. It's a partial liberation. It's uh, it's liberation on a leash. That's what it is. So, yeah. 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 I mean, there's two more examples, but we're like running out of time. So I'll just save those. I, I just won't go over those. They pretty much communicate the same thing. It's an effort to compromise to the point where, you know, Pharaoh still has control over the people or he can still subjugate them in some way. They're compromises that don't actually lead to liberation. Well, I just now thought of three intertextual echoes that I, I want to name real quick. Oh, okay. Number one is uh, the richness of the Bible and how you've got uh, all this narrative woven together, and it, sometimes it tells it in a really raw manner. One of the things to notice is, yes, they did uh, plunder the, so, uh, the gold of Egypt from their uh, from their enslavers, but you know some of that gold ended up in uh, the golden calf. And so you've got to just balance that. <laughs> yeah, of like, oh, yeah. you know, th- these things go around and come around, and and we have to think about that. The second thing is um, telling the <clears throat> telling them to your uh, children and making this a perpetual yearly ordinance and making it a identity marker of who's in and who's out of the community, and that anyone who does not uh, do the Passover festival is not part of the community; they're cut off from the people. We'll get some of this. The effects of that in Numbers chapter 9 with the Pesach Sheni uh, story, the story of the second Passover, the makeup. Uh, and I've talked about this before, but we're going we're gonna to yeah. get to it again. again. And another thing is this um, term for abomination that you had back in, uh, where was it? It was in Exodus 8, I think. Um, it's toeva is the Hebrew word saying that our... Our uh, ceremonies are are an abomination to the Egyptians. And what's interesting thing about that is that it it's part of the usage that helps us know what the word toeva means, abomination. It doesn't mean so much an objective moral failure, more as this is a taboo. It is a practice not done by this people, right? It is a relative to the time and place and culture. And so this toiva is the same word that's in Leviticus 18.22, which gets used to say that a man lying with another man, as with a woman, toiva he, it is an abomination. What it is, is it's uh, this sort of, uh, you've got all this other, uh, it doesn't have to be uh, a moral, objective, absolute abomination evil. It is, uh, in other contexts, this word is used for this is a practice not done by this people. 
And so we get that sense uh, here in this text in Roman in, in Exodus 8. So that's all I had to say, surprisingly. Um, <laughs> surprisingly indeed. But anyway, before we go ahead and wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can the people find us? You can find us at Beyond the Block podcast.com also on twitter and instagram at btblds and you can search for us on facebook and also want to send a, a quick special thanks to uh, david doyle for editing the strands the transcripts as well as stephanie martz and angela carter for being a big help with the social media and the, of course the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines including stephanie peterson mary gavilanes christine lestarge jen altman and uh, beth johnson these outlines are also including the uh, faithful feminist episodes from the uh, same week so you can have a one-stop shop for your come follow me and uh, the link to the outlines, it's going to be in the show notes as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for the uh, the transcripts there. Is there anything else we got to put the folks on to? Mm, nope, that's it. All right, wonderful. Thank you all. Till we meet again next week. Until we meet again next week with more jokes. Bye-bye. <laughs>